in uh, verse 22 of Acts chapter 22. And then we're going to wander into chapter 23 uh, in the storyline. And uh, <clears throat> we are going to wrestle with the text and try to figure out what's going on there and uh, try to fit it into its context and try to understand how it applies to our lives and uh, draw us hopefully closer to worshiping Christ and enjoying him. So let's have a word of prayer and then we will jump into the text this morning. Let's pray. Lord, help us this morning as we open up your text. Help us to hear from you. Help us to uh, comprehend uh, not just uh, the meaning, but the uh, purpose and the value of the text this morning. And uh, so, Lord, I pray that you will uh, speak into our lives. Uh, help me to speak uh, accurately what your text has to say. And I pray you'll glorify yourself because of the time we spend together this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. Um, actually, before we actually get into the text this morning, I do want to make an announcement with regard to this evening's service. Since it's supposed to clear up, we are planning on having the evening service uh, this evening, so it'll be at our house as always, and so if you uh, would like to join us at our house this evening at uh, 6 o'clock, uh, we'd love to have you. Uh, so um, with that in mind, let's jump into Acts chapter 22. It's uh, We're in the middle of the story. Uh, the story actually runs from uh, chapter 21 uh, all the way to the end of the chapter. It's, I'm sorry, the end of the book. It is really one continuous story um, as Paul is uh, has had a transition in chapter 21 from these missionary journeys uh, where he's been going out and about throughout Asia Minor and, uh, and ministering Christ and preaching Christ and uh, planting churches and uh, helping uh, Christians, new Christians, grow in their walk with the Lord. And this is now transitioned to a new phase in Paul's life where I, I kind of like to call it the fourth missionary journey eventually because in a little bit he's going to be shipped off to Rome. And <clears throat> it's going to be a process of going to Rome with several stopovers. And during those stopovers he's going to continue to minister the gospel to people. Uh, lost people as well as newly saved people. So it's a, a transition from his freedom to travel to now he is effectively uh, from here on out a ward of the state and uh, he will minister from here on out basically uh, to the end of Acts chapter 28 as a prisoner. So a dramatic shift in his ministry. So his his imprisonment story which started, which started, starts to gain its momentum in chapter 21, will continue all the way through to the end of chapter 28. We find ourselves in the middle of the beginning of the story in chapter 22, starting at verse 22, and we pick up in the middle of the story. Uh, so the story's already going on. Uh, I will bring you up to speed after we read through the entire text we're going to be looking at this morning uh, to help you understand how it fits in. But uh, starting with chapter 22, verse 22, Luke writes, up to this word, they listened to him. Uh, the word being referenced is in verse 21, the, the, the message from God that says, I'm going to send you far away to the Gentiles. You see at the end of verse 21, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered them to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, 
uh, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came to him and said, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune said, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was afraid. also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him <coughs> excuse me, and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil um, of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee and a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this in this man. What if an, an, a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And that's our text for today. We could go on further. Um, obviously, since the, the context of the story, it's a continuous story all the way through to the end of uh, 28, although unique, specific things throughout. Uh, we're going to end right there because it is a shift at that point in time, and there's enough material there for us to talk for a while. So... We have an interesting story uh, that we just read, starting in verse 22 of chapter 22 through chapter 23, verse 11. Uh, just to catch you up to speed, in case you weren't uh, listening in last week, or, um, or maybe you're new, or whatever the case may be, <clears throat> I want to fill you in on where we are at this point in time. Paul has come to Jerusalem. Everyone was warning him not to come because they said, if you go, you're going to be arrested and you're going to be, you're going to be turned over the Gentiles and you're going to be uh, thrown into prison and persecuted, which is what is beginning to happen. And God had told Paul that was what was going to happen. Um, and so he continuously told people that he was going no matter what was going to happen. He now has arrived in Jerusalem and what happens <clears throat> once he arrives in Jerusalem, if you remember several weeks ago, we talked about he was in Jerusalem and 
um, he met with, after the first night, he met with uh, the elders of the church in Jerusalem and the apostle James. Once he met with them, he talked to them and, rem- and told them all that God had done uh, through his ministry into Gentiles' lives, and many Gentiles were saved. In chapter 21, uh, verse 20, it says, Luke records, and when they, that is the elders and James, heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands, I'm sorry, stop for a second. They said when they heard it, they glorified God. So they're excited about Paul's ministry. They were thrilled that so many people came to faith in Christ. And then they comment immediately afterwards, and still in verse 20, they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And that statement, how many thousands uh, there are among the Jews, literally means that see the tens of thousands is what it literally means, or myriads of thousands, tens of thousands among the Jews who have believed. The very next statement is they are all zealous of the law, verse 21, and they have been told about you that you teach the Jews. And then it lists several things that, that they, they've been told by other Jews that Paul has been teaching that just isn't true. It is interesting, a couple things I mentioned a couple weeks ago, a couple things that are interesting is, number one, the things aren't true that Paul's being accused of. Um, <clears throat> Uh, number two, um, what you find is that they glorify God. They rejoice when Paul tells them what God has done. But when they tell Paul what has happened with all these tens of thousands of Jews that supposedly believe, Paul doesn't rejoice. That's intriguing. They rejoice. Paul doesn't. And so immediately the connection, they believed They're all zealous for the law would send up yellow flags in Paul's thinking. And then it talks about the things that they they think that Paul teaches, that they've been told that Paul teaches, that isn't true. And then James and the elders say to him in verse 22, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. They will hear that you have come. They will find out that you have come. And so that's going to be a problem. Why? Because they believe that things about Paul aren't, that aren't true. They believe things about Paul that aren't true. Now, I said in previous messages, and I still maintain this, I absolutely am convinced this is true. It seems to me that by implication, I want to be careful of my words, by implication, it seems to me like the elders and James haven't been doing anything or haven't been doing much to correct this, these errors in thinking. And now Paul's in town, and the problem is afoot. The problem is here, the problem is now, and the solution that James and the elders give is for Paul to go through the, this these rites of cleansing with these four people who have taken the Nazarite vow. And hopefully that will soothe over things when the, the Jewish believers, supposed believers, um, when they see Paul actually doing things of the law. 
Now, when we worked our way through the story, we discovered that as Paul agrees to do this, now I would argue he agrees to do this because he's trying to figure out what's really going on in the church of Jerusalem. So he goes through it, and sure enough, as he's going through these rites of purification, and he's been there almost seven days going through the rites of purification at the temple, some of the Jews from Asia, most likely the Jews from Ephesus, see him there, and they react. Now, you'll remember these Jews have been chasing Paul every step of the way and accusing him and creating all sorts of trouble every step of the way. It's not a surprise that they show up here in Jerusalem. And when they find him in the temple, they begin to incite a riot against Paul. They want him dead. And they get all the rest of the people jacked up in the temple, and they also want him dead. And they're screaming for his head. Now, if you remember several weeks ago, I said that's not just the Jews that are following Judaism that are riled up because the church typically met in the, in the temple or synagogues as well, and yet, as well as home churches. And yet, so most likely, I mean, there's also Jewish people who claim to be believers here, and they're all wound up. And they're cr- screaming out, such as in verse 36, away with him. But he gets arrested, he gets taken to the barracks, as you see in verse 34, and then Paul asks if he can speak to the crowd, and when when the tribune, the Roman guy in charge of a thousand soldiers, centurions and soldiers, finds out he can speak in Greek, he gives him permission to speak in Hebrew to the, uh, to the people. That brings us to chapter 22. And he begins to speak and tell his story his story of his life before Christ, his story of his conversion on the road to Damascus, his story about after his conversion, where he goes to Ananias, not the high priest that we find in today, but another Ananias up in Damascus. He receives back his eyesight, and he immediately begins to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ to people. He's transformed. It is really clear. And that takes us up to, in his testimony, as he continues to talk, we work our way through, and it talks, he talks about Stephen being killed by these people in Jerusalem, and everything's going okay. The people are listening until we come to verse 21. He says, Jesus, uh, in verse 21, um, it says, uh, and he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And it is interesting, that brings us up to where we are currently. It's very interesting, and I filled it in because all of that comes into play in this text today. It becomes very interesting because in verse 22, once he says, verse 21, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles, it is intriguing in verse 22 that they listened, it says, up until this point. Up to this word they listened to him. When they raised their or then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Verse 22. And I remember reading this over the years saying, that doesn't make any sense. Why would they be so fired up about Paul going to the Gentiles? Because in my mind, as I think it through, in the Old Testament, first of all, the Bible kind of clearly in the law talks about ministering the truth of God to Gentiles 
foreigners, it talks about in, in, in the law. And then in, in Matthew, uh, Jesus even mentions to the Pharisees that they will travel across half of the world to make one proselyte, that is referring to a Gentile, to turn to Judaism, to make one proselyte only to make them just as condemned as they are. So the idea of going to the Gentiles isn't foreign to the Gentile, to these Jews. And yet they listen to him quietly until he says, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. It doesn't really make sense upon first reading that they would react to that. You'd think they would react to Jesus, the statements he makes about Jesus and how he changed his view about, about Jesus on the road to Damascus. But they react to this one. And it sets the mind to wondering, why would they react to this? And then I remembered what all the Jewish quote-unquote believers believed about Paul. And that is that, they were, that Paul was going to Gentiles and telling them that they could ignore the law and that they didn't have to follow it at all and that none of that mattered anymore which he'd never taught. Just a reminder of what they said that he was saying. In um, verse 21 of, cha of chapter 21, it says, And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Those are the three things. In other words, throw everything to do in the Old Testament away is what they've been told. That is, the Jewish believers have been told this. By the way, that's a clue that at least there's a group here that are, that are the Jewish believers that are pretty wired about this guy, Paul. That they would react this strongly implies that, that these are a combination of the Jews from Ephesus firing people up and probably some of the Jewish believers, the ones that James called Jewish believers. They would react because this is the very thing that James and the elders were concerned would happen when the Jewish believers would find out that Paul was there. And sure enough, that's what happened. And they scream out, they want him to die. They, they, they want him not to live, and instead they want him removed from the earth, verse 22. Verse 23 goes on, and as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered, that he, uh, ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying he should be examined by flogging uh, to find out uh, why he, uh, they were shouting against him like this. The reason why it's said the way it is is because the tribune most likely didn't know Hebrew and they're all screaming in Hebrew or Aramaic, a form of Hebrew. Uh, they're all screaming in a language he doesn't understand. So he doesn't know what's going on. He's got to figure out what in the world's going on because all sorts of weird things are happening. They're shouting something he doesn't understand. They're throwing off their cloaks, which, by the way, is implication, uh, by implication, according to the scriptures, that's a, 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 a process or a, something that happens right before uh, stoning takes place. So they're removing their coats so that they could stone this guy. And the fling of dust into the air is a Hebrew expression of 
absolute anger and hatred, and oftentimes as the dust or dirt was being thrown into the air, it'd be being thrown not just into the air, but at the object of, of their anger. So it's being thrown, all the dust and dirt are being thrown at Paul. You can imagine it's quite a raucous situation. The Tribune is looking at all this, and he's trying to figure out what in the world's going on, but he can't figure it out. So he demands, he orders his troops to, to uh, take uh, Paul captive again and bring him inside the barracks. And the purpose for bringing him inside the barracks is so that he could examine them without all the craziness going on. But he says specifically in verse 24, we're going to examine him by flogging to find out what's, what this is all about. So they bring Paul inside. Verse 25 says, but when they had stretched him out for the whips. Now, if you have a different translation than I'm reading from, uh, I'm reading from the ESV. If you have a different translation, you, you'll probably see some form of when they had stretched, bound him uh, with cords or something like that. And that's, that's a perfectly fine translation. Um, the idea is he's bound and he's getting ready to be whipped. That's the idea. Paul then speaks, okay, they stretched him out, they bound him, and the idea is stretching him out on some sort of rack, some sort of structure where his back is exposed and they're going to whip him. Now, the whipping that they're going to do is not like uh, a lot of whippings. This is really important. This is not like some whippings in the scripture. The whippings they're getting ready to do on Paul is the exact same whipping they did to Jesus. That, I think, becomes important as we work our way through. So just hold that thought. It's an ugly whipping. It's a cat of nine tails with all sorts of um, metal and glass at the end of the, um, of, the, of the strips of leather that are designed to tear and cut. And so um, Paul then speaks up. He's bound. He's stretched out. The, the, the soldier's right there, ready to whip him. And Paul then says to the centurion who's standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? He asks the question. And the obvious answer, if you remember our study in the past, is it is not. A Roman soldier cannot be bound and he cannot be flogged without a trial. He has to be condemned first. This idea of flogging in order to find out the truth was only reserved for non-Roman citizens. A Jewish person in Jerusalem, fine. Uh, someone from a, uh, that is not a Roman a citizen from anywhere in the Roman Empire or from outside the Roman Empire, fine. A Roman citizen cannot be bound and cannot be flogged without a trial and a conviction. So that's where he asks the question, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Verse 26, when the centurion hears this or heard this, he went to the tribune, who is his boss, um, and he said to him, what are you about to do? He questions him, and the question is a very aggressive question. What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune comes to, and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? So he asks him the question, are you a Roman citizen? And it's easy in the reading to say, well, Steve, Anybody could have said, yeah, I'm a Roman citizen. Why not? Who wouldn't say that? You could avoid a, a scourging, if a whipping, if you say you're a Roman citizen. But the simple reality is, historically, you couldn't do that. You could say that, but when it was discovered that you weren't, that you weren't a Roman citizen, that was a capital offense. It, the result would be you'd be killed because you lied about your citizenship. You would be killed for that in this, in this era, in Paul's era. So he asks him, are you a Roman citizen? 
And the, and the tribune hears Paul say, yes. Verse 28, the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Just stop for that, on that for just a second. I'm just giving some background. During a short period of time, uh, and it was this period of time, uh, people who were not Roman citizens but lived in the Roman Empire, if they were rich, they could actually purchase a Roman citizenship. It was corrupt. Uh, it was because of a corrupt government, and the whole point of it was it was set up so that the uh, Roman government wouldn't have to pay all the officials across the vast Roman Empire. They could just give out Roman citizenships to rich people and basically extort them. And so this uh, tribune basically got extorted. He bought his citizenship. Yeah, government corruption is not new. It's very old. That's a pure and simple aside. So this tribune bought his citizenship from a corrupt Roman government. <clears throat> um, and so he says, I bought this for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. Now that's different because there's two different types of citizenship now in the Roman Empire. You have the on the one hand, you have the purchased one, which was a Roman citizenship, and you did get rights, but you weren't really looked on real highly because everybody knew it was a scam. Everybody knew it was just a way for rich people to get a little bit more blessing and a better status is all it was for, and you got protection and things like that from that and status and all the rest. But to be natural-born Roman citizen is a whole different animal. And the only way to be a natural-born citizen is, is if your father or your grandfather or somebody did something great for the country. And if they did something great for the country, then they would be awarded the citizenship. Maybe in war, they did something great in war or whatever the case may be. They would be awarded a citizenship and that citizenship would pass on from generation to generation. And so to be a natural born citizen was the height of position. <clears throat> and that's where Paul finds himself. So this tribune who is examining him has a bought citizenship, which is just one minor step above a scam. And yet Paul has a natural citizenship by birth. Verse 29, so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and, and, uh, that, and that he had bound him. See, since binding someone and or scourging someone who is a citizen without trial or without and without conviction is a serious offense. And although he hadn't been scourged yet, he was bound. Serious offense. At minimum, if you violated that law, at minimum, you would also receive the same discipline that you dished out to the Roman citizen. At, so in other words, at minimum, he would be bound. But usually what would, be, what would happen, especially if you have a bought citizenship, if you did this type of thing to a Roman citizen, you would lose your citizenship at minimum. You may even be killed for it. It's a serious thing. And so they're afraid because he'd already bound him. <clears throat> so at that point in time, nightfall comes and they wait till the next day. But on the next day, verse 30, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him. It's interesting that although he was afraid, he didn't unbind him for some reason. And the text doesn't tell us why they did until the next day. But they finally, the next day, unbind, unbind him. In verse 30, 
and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. So the next morning, by the next morning, the tribune figures out this is not a Roman situation. We have a Roman citizen being charged by the Jews of some sort of crime. The tribune doesn't know what it is, but he has reached the point where he's suspicious, strongly suspicious that this guy, Paul, is being charged not with Roman crimes of Roman law, but Jewish crimes of Jewish law. And so his answer is to bring the chief priests and the whole council together and figure it out by listening to Paul and the, uh, the council and the chief priests argue this thing out. So the chief priests and the whole council come, and Paul is brought down before them, and uh, it says uh, that Paul was sat at the end of verse, uh, chapter 23, sat before them, and then it says in, verse 20, in chapter 23, verse 1, and looking intently at the council, the picture is pretty clear, Paul gazes upon the council, he, he, he's not ashamed, he's not shy about this, he intently looks upon them. He's got confidence in what he's about to say because he, he knows what he's about to say is absolutely the truth. And he opens his mouth, verse 1 of chapter 23, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. I want to stop on verse 1 briefly to help you understand something. First, when he says brothers here, he is not talking at this point about those Jewish believers. He He's talking about brothers as in he's Jewish, they're Jewish. He's a Jew, they're a Jew, so therefore they're brothers. So this is not a Christian statement. It's just about their brothers as in they share the same linkage all the way back to Abraham, the same lineage back to Abraham. And then he makes a statement, I have lived my life before God in all conscience up to this day. I want to stop on that just for a moment so that we understand what, what Paul's saying. When he says, I've lived my life before God in all, con all good conscience up to this day, it almost sounds in our modern way of thinking that Paul just said, I am sinless. And that's not what he's saying. He's talking about characteristically. His, the character of his life is not one that is in rebellion to God. The character of his life is one of good conscience before God. He has been in pursuit of God. He's been after knowing God and glorifying God and serving God his entire life. And I would argue in this statement, he's not referring to just since the road to Damascus. He's probably referring to his entire life. He's referring to even before he was saved, he was hot after following God. He knew the whole law. He followed the law. If you don't believe that, you just got to read Philippians chapter 3. He makes it really clear. He was hot after the law. It's just when he finally on the road to Damascus realized that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law, it shifted from sheer obedience to the law to love of Jesus and following Jesus which didn't mean he threw out the law as we know, but he recognized that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. So he could say, from the beginning till now, I've lived my life before God in all conscience up to this day. And this explains the reaction from the high priest Ananias on several levels. Verse two, and the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. 
couple things about verse 2. <clears throat> Why did Ananias, the chief priest, demand that he be struck on the mouth? Why did he demand that he get beaten all of a sudden? Because Ananias, who is the chief priest, who would have known Paul before, although he wasn't high priest back then, he would have known Paul before the road to Damascus. And he knew what Paul was like before Damascus, and he knew what Paul was like after Damascus, and those two are not the same in Ananias' eyes. They are not connected in any way. He was right before and a heretic now. That's Ananias' perspective. So when he hears Paul declare, I have lived my life before God, he is invoking God and declaring that from Ananias' perspective, his heretical life is before God or in the face of God. That's what that means, before God, in the face of, in the presence of God. I've lived this life in the presence of God, and I know it's right. And in Ananias' perspective, there's no way both could be right because they don't, Ananias does not understand that Jesus and rejects the understanding that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, that all the law pointed to Jesus. Now, one other thing that we need to understand about Ananias in, uh, in verse 2 is this. We need to understand who Ananias is. It's really easy to miss this, but if you, if, if you know Jewish history, especially during Paul's era, one of the things you'll know is that Ananias, the chief priest, was not a good guy. He was not a good guy at all. In fact, he was deceitful. He was self-centered. He was self-exalting. He was corrupt. He was greedy. There, I mean, Josephus has nothing but bad to say about Ananias the high priest, for example. As a, as a Jew who is not a follower of Jesus, he has nothing good to say about Ananias. He was a bad man and an even worse high priest. So it's kind of interesting that Ananias, who's greedy and self-centered and self-serving and self-exalting, is the one who'd be offended by Paul saying he's been in the face of God in good conscience. When Anna, If there's anybody there who is not in good conscience before God or in the face of God, it would be Ananias the high priest. But he gets mad because of what Paul said. And so he says... Um, that he commands that the, one of the people standing by him should strike him, that is Paul, on the mouth. Now, this striking on the mouth that is referenced here is uh, could be either a strike by hand or it could be a strike by a rod. It could be either one. Now, it doesn't say it actually happened in the text, but by implication, it probably did. Paul probably got struck either by hand or by a rod in the mouth. And this is like a full, I mean, this is a full-on smack. It, it, even if it was a hand, it would really hurt. If it was a rod, it would really hurt. Then Paul, interestingly enough, verse 3, says to him, we're going to come back to some of these statements in a little bit, but then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, yet contrary to the law you, you ordered me to be, to be struck? An interesting statement by Paul in verse 3. Paul immediately comes back on the high priest and, 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 and prophesies, God is going to strike you. And by the way, that actually happens because short time after this, he, he, is, he, is, he loses his high priestly position historically and he loses all his status and everything. So everything is taken from him. 
God is going to strike you. And then interestingly enough, Paul calls him, you whitewashed wall. I hope by this point in time, you're starting to think about the storyline that we're reading and the words being used in the text. And you're going to start to say, wait a second, things are starting to sound familiar here. They should be. We're going to talk about it in a little bit. But interesting that he says, he calls the high priest a whitewashed wall. It's an intriguing term. Just a little hint, Jesus uses whitewashed also in one place that we'll talk about in just a second. But here he calls the high priest a whitewashed wall, which is a very intriguing term that is very highly connected to Jesus' statement. But unlike Jesus' statement where he calls the Pharisees uh, whitewashed tombs, and by the way, Ananias probably was there for that one too, here... He's called a whitewashed wall, not a whitewashed tomb, which is intriguing. A whitewashed tomb would have dead men's bones in it. But a whitewashed wall doesn't have dead men's bones in it. But a whitewashed wall has something else in it. The reason why they would whitewash a wall is because the walls in that day, I mean, stone walls were just stone walls, and they wouldn't whitewash those. But other walls that were not made out of stone, were made out of some other substance. And what the substance was is really intriguing because what they would use to build walls that were not stone walls is they would use garbage to build them. They would gather all sorts of garbage that they could find, any type of garbage they could find. They would mix the garbage with dirt and make and water and make mud that's full of garbage, and they would form the walls. But when they'd form the walls, you'd look at the wall and you would see garbage everywhere. Even though it's smooth, you could see all the garbage because it's mud and garbage. And once the mud hardens, it's dirt, hard dirt, and garbage. Well, nobody wants their house to be garbage house. And so what they would do is they would take whitewash and they would coat it thickly with the whitewash so that all you could see is the whitewashed walls. You wouldn't see what's inside. Everybody knew what was inside the walls, but you wouldn't see that. You'd just see the whitewash, not the wall, not what's inside the wall. So when Paul says to the high priest, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, what Paul is saying you may very well look good on the outside. And he did, because he would have the high priest garb on. He looked great. And he, of course, he would act proper, and he would act like he's following the law, and he'd be careful to follow the law. But Paul's saying, hey, you look really great there. You know, you got all your vestments on, you're, you're, you're following the law seemingly, but really... All we see is all of this whitewash because inside Ananias, you absolutely are nothing but garbage. Interesting. Interesting statement. Again, we're going to come back to that. He says, he goes on after he makes that declaration, which is a very true declaration, by the way. And everybody around had to know it because of how deceitful he was and how greedy he was and how self-serving he was. He says to Ananias, are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck. You are, in other words, you're bringing the law to bear on me. And yet you violate the law right here in the process of wielding the law. How convenient that is. Of course, the people around him 
they react, and the people are the rest of the people, the council and the aides. And most likely is one of one of the uh, high priest aides, and he said, "Would you revile God's high priest?" In other words, would you speak out against the high priest? Are you serious, Paul? You're going to speak out against the high priest? Paul responds in verse 5, Oh, wait, er, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, it's interesting that most people think that Paul here actually didn't know that he was the high priest. And I reject that. I think absolutely he knew. How could he not know? The high priest is there in an official capacity, and in the official capacity, he would have been wearing all of his robes. This is not like he's out on the street where he'd probably be wearing his his robes anyway, but he's there wearing his high priestly robes. He is in an official position doing an official judgment, official trial, as it were, Jewish trial. He would have been in his high priestly garb. He recognizes that he is one of these people, because he says to him, you're sitting to judge me. He recognizes who he is. So what is Paul doing when he says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest? He's being sarcastic. He's being absolutely sarcastic here. Of course he knows he's the high priest, but he also knows he's he's illegitimately the high priest. Why is he illegitimately the high priest? Well, for a really good important reason. A high priest is supposed to represent the people of God, God's chosen people. He is the one who is supposed to be going into the Holy of Holies once a year to help the process of atoning for the people's sin. But he can only do it if he's atoned for his own sin. But this man was absolutely greedy and self-serving and self-exalting. He was everything a high priest should not be in every way. He was absolutely disqualified from being a high priest. He was in a position he was not qualified for, for, and rather than being not qualified for it, he was absolutely disqualified from it. So Paul is not actually giving an apology here, I would argue, although he quotes from Exodus, when he says, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people, what he's really doing is saying he's an illegitimate ruler. He's an absolutely illegitimate ruler. He is not in a position to rule as a high priest. So going back to verse 3, when he says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, he's absolutely right. God's going to strike him, and he does. He's absolutely right when he says, you're a whitewashed wall, because he is. He's absolutely correct in his question. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck? Because obviously that's exactly what the high priest did. Moving on, verse 6. Again, we're going to come back to a lot of these things. Verse 6, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council. At this point in time, between 5 and 6, Paul realizes really quickly there's going to be nothing good that's going to come out of this meeting. Immediately, I mean, literally the very first thing Paul says as he begins his defense, he doesn't even get with it. What do you do? Um, chapter 23, verse 1, he gets one sentence out. I wasn't sure if it was one or two sentences. He gets one sentence out and he gets smacked. 
and everybody's against him. It's very clear to him. The high priest is against him. That means everybody's against him. He's doomed in this situation. And so as he sits there, he, he remembers, he perceives, verse 6, that one part of the council is Sadducees and the other part Pharisees. And so his plan totally shifts. No longer, it's interesting here, no longer is he going to do what, he's, what he was planning on doing. He was planning on doing exactly what he did the day before in front of the whole people. What did he do? He basically presented the gospel to them. And he, now he's in front of the council and the high priests, and he begins, he just starts, just starts into the process of talking about the gospel. And he gets smacked, and he knows there's no hope here. Now, he's known this all along, that it's going to reach this point where it's going to be absolutely shut down. There's no hope. The gospel is, is like throwing a tennis ball or a ping pong ball against a titanium wall. It is not going to make a difference to these Jewish people. And so verse 6, he does what all, the only thing he can do. He, he perceives one part were Sadducees, the other part were Pharisees. And so what does he do? Rather than preaching the gospel anymore, he says what? Brothers, verse 6, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial, which is true. Paul believes in the resurrection. He, he has a hope in the resurrection. It's really clear in all of his writings. And so he declares that that's why he's on trial. Well, ultimately, he's not lying. He's correct. Because if Jesus is true, Jesus has promised a resurrection, and he's promised that he's returning, and so he's absolutely correct. But there's no gospel in this statement. He just says, I believe the resurrection, that's what I'm on trial for. Because obviously the resurrection is the grand culmination of Christ's work in, in a believer's life on this earth. Verse 7, and when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Which it must have been really kind of funny for Paul, by the way, if I may just throw this as an aside. You know, they're there to deal with him. <laughs> to condemn him, and they're united in condemning him until he just throws the bomb in the middle of the room and says, oh, I believe in the resurrection and the hope of resur resurrection, and all of a sudden, they both start fighting each other. Why? Because verse 7, uh, I'm sorry, verse 8, for the Sadducees say that there was that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And of course, he was a Pharisee before he, he became a believer. Verse 9, then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes and Pharisees' party stood up, scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. Suddenly, the scribes, who are like lawyers almost in this council, stand up and they start fighting for Paul. <laughs> they start arguing for Paul. We find nothing wrong with this in this man. If a spirit or an angel spoke to him, or what if an angel or spirit spoke to him? Because he said that God spoke to him, Jesus. Now, they're rejecting the idea that Jesus was God. But what if an angel or, or, or spirit spoke to him? No problem for the Pharisees. <laughs> and then verse 10, the dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees gets so intense, it became so violent the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. <laughs> so picture this. 
Paul's in front of the, of, of the, the, the council and the Pharisee and the, and the high priests. And they're unified against Paul. Paul speaks, gets slapped immediately, whether it's by hand or rod. He rebukes the, the chief priest. Now everybody's against him. Everybody's against him. And then Paul says, oh, I believe the resurrection. That's why I'm being tried. And now all of a sudden, the Sadducees and Pharisees turn on each other, and Paul's initially like on the side, and they're fighting each other, yelling at each other, arguing with each other, and people are standing up on the Pharisee side. There's nothing wrong with this guy. Sadducees, no, he needs to die. And probably some of the, some uh, maybe one or two of the Pharisees are even, man, eh, I'm not sure. But anyway, they're and eventually it becomes violent. They are physically violent with one another. I'm just picturing suddenly the, the high priest's vestments are being torn, his hat goes flying. I mean, the whole thing's crazy. And then they grab Paul. And it's you get the picture that that the Sadducees have a hold of Paul, and the Pharisees have a hold of Paul, and they're tearing at him, trying to pull him to their side. The Pharisees now so they can protect him, the Sadducees so they can kill him. And it's like he's going to get torn in half. It's so violent. And the whole time, the tribune and the, and the soldiers are like, what in the world is going on? And so the tribune is so afraid that Paul is going to be torn in pieces that he's going to get killed in the midst of them that he sends his soldiers in forcefully to take him away uh, from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. That brings us to verse 11, the last verse in our text today. The following night, the Lord stood by him, that is, while he's in the barracks, and it's like he has a vision from God, and God says to him, a vision from, the, from Jesus, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, which he had done, right? He had done that. We saw it earlier, chapter 22. He had made very clear the facts about Jesus. Take courage, Paul, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So now Paul has laid out what's going to happen the remainder of the book of Acts. This is where he's going, straight to Rome. Well, not straight, in a kind of a crooked way, but he's going to get to Rome. And the point of going to Rome is his ministry to the Gentiles is going to continue, just like we saw in verse 21 of chapter 22. Now, there's several interesting things. We've, we've gone over the text now. We've read it several times. We've talked it through. We have the background material. We have the understanding of the flow of the text and what's happening in the text. But there's a couple of interesting things that I think really jump off the page that we need to pay attention to. Two things specifically. <clears throat> One is going to be an argument from silence, which always is dangerous. So please work with me. It's always dangerous to present an argument from silence. But I want to present it anyway because I think it's important and what it is, is it is strange to me that Luke, who is very careful in his writings, and he presents data very specifically in his writings. It's very interesting that there is something really weirdly missing in this text. At least to me. You do with it what, it's will, but what you will, but I think it's important. There's something strangely missing in this text. Maybe some of you have picked up on it. Maybe you haven't. 
But there's something strangely missing. If you go all the way back to verse 22 of chapter 22, it says, but up to this word they listened to him. That is the Jews, Jews from Asia, the Jews in Jerusalem, and the Jews who are now claimed to be believers. They listened to him. And then once he said what he said, they all freaked out and they all started screaming out for his death. And then from 22 all the way to um, 24, this is what's happening, okay? And then finally they bring him into the barracks. And then in chapter 23, you have the same thing happening, but now it's just the council. It's not as obvious in the council discussion because this may not have happened in the council discussion. But in 22, 23, and 24, and even if you go back into the earlier part when Paul, starting in chapter 137 all the way through to chapter 22, verse 21, the thing that is really interesting by its absence is nowhere in this text all the way through from 2137 through chapter 22, verse 24, do you find any of the elders, nor do you find James speaking up to defend Paul? I don't know about you, but that catches my attention. I would expect somewhere, because elsewhere, earlier, time after time, we have seen people defend Paul. Other believers step up and defend him. And sometimes those people are arrested as well. But this time, the only time the elders show up in the entire storyline is chapter 21, verse 18 through 26. That's the only time the elders or James show up. That's kind of weird. It's kind of strange that Luke doesn't mention any defense at all. Now, is this the only time that happens? No. If you think about 2 Timothy chapter 4, what do you find? Well, Paul is up for another trial. He says, everybody left me. When I needed a defense, everybody left me. And then he talks about Demas leaving him. And then he talks about a church in Asia leaving him. It is intriguing. Now, in, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we need to recognize that those who left him at his trial came back later on and defended him once again. But at the moment of his trial, they were nowhere to be found. But he says, don't hold it against them because the implication is they repented of that. But it is interesting to notice that at the moment where any thinking person would say, if there's any time that, a, that Paul would, or anybody would need someone to stand up for him, it'd be here. And yet, what do we find? Paul's all alone. No defense, no help. Nobody running defense with him. He's all alone. It is striking to see. And it would make sense, in a way, where's James? Where's, where's the other elders? Well, it would make sense because they, they were all excited of these tens of thousands of Jews who were zealous for the law and don't trust Paul. And then 
the moment or at the point of the conflict, it's like they just vanish from the storyline. That's the very time they should have been saying, man, we really screwed up. We should have defended Paul every step of the way. We should have defended the gospel every step of the way. We should have spoken into these Jewish believers' lives, these people who are professing Christ. We should have spoken into their lives and pointed out to them that, that, that the zealousness for the law was a stumbling block, but we didn't. This is the time. Now is the time to do it. And they didn't. Seemingly, Luke is silent about any defense. Where are the elders? Where are the people who are saying, I got your back, Paul, because I believe the same gospel you do? It's not there. And what I'm saying, what I'm trying to point out is there is, there is a real warning shot over the bow for every reader of this text in the silence of the text. There is a warning shot over the bow. And one of the, when, I, when I was studying this text, one of the first thoughts that came to my mind is this. The scriptures tell us, he who perseveres to the end will be saved. That's what it says. Compromise is easy. Overlooking things is very easy. Especially when you have something to gain by overlooking. And I can't be super dogmatic about it because it's an argument from silence, but but it is a, a very loud silence. It's a caution, almost a very cautionary tale to the reader of Acts 21 through 23, verse 11. And the cautionary tale is, am I a person who is absolutely enthralled with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Am I a person who absolutely abhors additions to the gospel, absolutely abhors things being removed from the gospel? Am I someone who loves Jesus so much that I want more than anything else his gospel to remain pure and unadulterated in any way? Am I someone who is watching my heart to make sure that, that I recognize the warning flags such as they're zealous for the law, that that is a serious yellow flag. And it screams out that there's a problem. I'm reminded of Solomon in Song of Solomon when he said to watch out for the little foxes because they come in and they're so cute. They seem so insignificant. They seem like not a big deal. But you leave them there and they become big foxes. And they start tearing everything up. Just the other day I got a text from a friend who sent me a picture and said, hey, there's a deer in my front yard and this deer is snacking on, on my bush. What should I do? I said, scare it away. Really? She, the person said, why? I said, because if you don't scare it away, it's going to destroy your bush. When we got a lot of snow, they'll eat, they'll eat the whole thing to shreds. Scare them away. And every time you see them, scare them away. Just keep doing it. Do what you have to do. Why? Because if you don't, this cute little deer by himself will absolutely destroy all your landscaping. That's why. Same idea. 
Oh, but it's a cute deer. Yeah, until your landscaping is gone, and then it's too late. That's exactly what Solomon was talking about. Oh, the cute little fox is not a big deal. It's just a little fox. No, little foxes grow up to be big foxes. And the big foxes destroy everything. Or to put it the way Spurgeon put it, he said, it's easier to crush the egg than it is to kill the snake. The egg's there, not a big deal. It's just laying there. But if you don't deal with the eggs, then what's going to happen is there's going to be snakes everywhere in your house. And that, I think, is what's going on with James at this point and with, with the elders. And the evidence of it is when, the, when, when now, to use the, the Spurgeon quote idea, the, the egg is hatched. And it's a lot easier just to isolate and stay away from the destruction than it is to wade in knowing you're going to pay a severe price for this. Be after it. Firstly, be after our own heart that we don't allow the, the little foxes in. And then secondly, especially as leaders of a church, but anybody in a church should be after, secondly, as I, after I deal with my own heart, be after dealing with others. The scriptures are really clear about that. Don't allow compromises like that, especially not compromises about the gospel. And that's a big takeaway out of this text. The destruction of this church in Jerusalem is nightmarish at this point in time. And then the second thing we take away, it's very intriguing to me, but you probably picked up on it, at least I hope you did. Did you notice in chapter 23, Oh, you can even go before that. Chapter 22, um, you find uh, verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. Who is Paul being set down before? The chief priests the scribes, the elders, the, the uh, council. Who are these people? It's the same council that Jesus stood before. And it's the same council that Stephen stood before. Interestingly, is if we continue to work our way through, verse 2, the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Same thing happened to Jesus. He didn't get struck, it didn't seem like. But he was commanded to be struck, to be struck. And he spoke. And he said, if I violated the law, of course, but if I didn't, what are you striking me for? And the reality is Jesus didn't violate the law. Now, Paul seemingly does not speak before he gets struck. He speaks afterwards. But it's interesting, the similarities that we see Interesting. The similarities we see. What, what do we do with the similarities that we see in the text? You could also get into the whole citizenship thing as well, but we won't go there today. But, but it's interesting. What do we do with the similarities? There's some really striking similarities. There's several others in there too. What do we do with similarities? Well, my first thought as I was reading through the text was this. Jesus, or I'm sorry, Paul loves Jesus because he first loved Paul, because Jesus first loved Paul. And if we're believers, then we love Jesus because he first loved us. And Jesus said, if they hated you, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. Why? Because you're a recipient of my love, and as a result, you love me. 
it should not be unsurprising that the hatred towards Paul looks similar to the hatred towards Jesus. It should not be surprising at all. And what I would say as we look at the text, that unlike being unsurprising, it really ought to be expected. Because that's exactly what, what the scriptures tell us is going to happen. All who love Christ Jesus will suffer. I'm sorry. Yeah, all, all those in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And here's Paul, after repeatedly suffer, suffering persecution out and about in other cities, comes to Jerusalem and is what? Suffering persecution once again. The point is, certainly in the book of Acts, it presents over and over again this idea that it is common. It is to be expected. It happens. And it will continue on the rest of the way through the book of Acts. Don't be surprised. This, is, this should not be unusual. It should not be a surprise to us. What should be a surprise is that we don't suffer persecution. It should, be, it should not be a surprise, not only that we suffer, but it should not be a surprise that we suffer like Jesus suffered. Rejection, hatred, being despised, mocked, ridiculed, and in some cases even killed, imprisoned, everything. Arrested, tried, the whole shooting match. It should not surprise us. One of the things I find interesting is contrary to, to the storyline that we find in the scriptures, is how often when little teeny persecutions come upon us, how surprised we are and how undone we are by it. And how quickly we try to figure out ways to avoid or minimize the persecution, the mockery, the rejection, the ridicule. Which says something about us. If I may go all the way back to the original part that uh, we started at with the Jews that claim to be believers, oh, maybe it's not the law that we're zealous about, but we're zealous about something else. And the result of us being zealous about something else is that we defend the thing we're zealous about. But when we're zealous for Jesus rather than zealous for something else, then in the midst of difficulty, we will continue to be zealous for Jesus. And what do we see in Paul? He continues to be zealous for Jesus. He stands up and boldly speaks the truth until it, it's just, okay, now it's just time for it to completely go to, to the Gentiles. Are we people who are zealous for Jesus? Are we zealous for something else? Are we zealous for Jesus? Are we enthralled with Jesus? Are we amazed by Jesus? Are we amazed by his grace towards us, by his mercy towards us, by, by his mercifully grafting us into the vine? by his mercifully being our redeemer, our older brother, our, uh, the one who shares the inheritance that rightly only belongs to him and he shares it with us? Are we enamored by and drawn to and thrilled with and zealous for him? Or do we find ourselves zealous for something else? Because, you know, ultimately, if we're zealous for something else, whatever that is, for the Jews, it was the law. If, if we are zealous for something else, inevitably... When push comes to shove, that will be the 
the, the, the focus of how we respond to the difficulties that pour into our lives. The difficulties will therefore expose to us who we are really and what we are really zealous for. Love the truth. Know the truth. Stand up for the truth because you know and love Jesus. Because you are deeply in an intimate relationship with him. Are you not in a deep, intimate relationship with him? It is time to repent and believe. Have you wandered astray? It's time to repent and believe. The best time, if I may close with this, the best time, the absolute best time to to repent and turn back to Jesus, the absolute best time is when I'm being tempted to turn away. And the second best time to repent and to turn back to Jesus is right now. Let's pray. Lord, help us. We are prone to wander. We know it. We feel it. It's there all the time. We are prone to minimize what should be maximized. And we are prone to maximize what should be minimized or non-existent. And so, Lord, we ask that you open our eyes to see the truth. And not just to see the truth of your gospel, of what Jesus has done and who he is. But we will not just see it, but because of your love pouring out to us, that we will be enthralled by it. That we will be drawn to it. And we will be drawn to him. Because we know that he is our only hope. And then in being drawn to him, Lord, help us to repent and believe and follow Protect us from wrong thinking, wrong desires, wrong passions. Draw us close. Help us to see and to worship. In your name I pray. Amen.